Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the author, Bethany Clift. Now, I love this interview, and I'm really chuffed I got the chance to speak to Bethany before she hits the big time, which I know is only a matter of time, because her books are fantastic. Her debut, Last One at the Party, came out in 2021, and is a brilliant take on the lone survivor in an apocalypse genre. Basically, because it doesn't fall into any of the usual tropes. There's no romance plotline, because everyone is dead. There is no aliens, mutants, or zombies. Everyone is dead. It's just one central character, who isn't a lovable Tom Hanks on an island with a volleyball. It's a spoiled little socialite, who makes lots of mistakes during her journey. And... I love that this character is clearly not a cipher for the writer. This is a flawed character who learns and goes on a journey. And Bethany writes with a confidence and insight into human behaviour that I just found really exciting. It's really worth checking out. And her follow-up in 2022 could it be more different. And that's what excited me even more about speaking to her. Love and Other Human Errors is just a rom-com, but it's one of the best I've ever read. It's set in a tech corporation and has a neurodiverse lead. The story is split between three central characters who have very different backgrounds and lifestyles. And the romantic challenges make sense due to the emotional baggage they carry rather than any contrived external forces. They have to learn and grow to make their relationships work. And it's just phenomenal storytelling. So, yeah, last one at the party and Love and Other Human Errors, both by Bethany Clift, both brilliant. And I genuinely believe this is an episode that will really age well. Uh, I feel like it's like finding the band before they go like massive. And I know that are those of you who work in the publishing world. And trust me, you will want to check out her work and then reach out and have a conversation. I'm going to be blunt. I don't think she's been marketed well enough, especially for her talent. Someone will offer a better contract and you'll wish it was you. If you need more evidence, then we're about to listen to the lady herself. She's fantastic. Uh, One disclaimer before we start. I do need to say this was recorded in late September 2022, which is why we're talking about the death of the Queen. Uh, The delay is my fault, but I'm glad we're finally here. Anyway, on to the jingle. And I'm here with Bethany Clift. My first question is what are we drinking? I am drinking a giant cup of tea in my writing mug. That uh, is a monster. Which I'm holding up, so you can't see it on the screen. <laughs> it's a pink mug, and I'm going to say, is. <laughs> my wife has very large mugs. That's probably about an 18-ounce mug, yes. I'd say. Yes, I like, I like to have a big mug of tea so they don't have to keep running back and forth to the kitchen and refilling it. No. Also, it's a really thick cup, so it keeps my tea warm. Mm. for ages so oh, I'm terrible with forgetting that I've got a cup of tea <laughs> yeah and then my husband's always like, your tea's getting cold and I'm like no it's not perfectly <laughs> <laughs> warm <laughs> Excellent. so this is definitely your writer's drink then you're yes, a writer I had a special tea. cup so I had a special cup that I used the whole time when I wrote last one at the party mm. and then literally after I'd sent my last edits in and we were at proof stage the day after, my son dropped it on the floor and it smashed. And everyone was like, oh my God, is she going to be able to write again? <laughs> when, it, when I say everyone, I mean like the four of us in my family. The important um, people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I struggled on using various cups. And then for my birthday last year, my husband brought me this giant pink mug. And this one is, this one is it. This is the one Excellent. that I settled with. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And you didn't stop writing because you wrote Love and Other Human Errors, which is an absolute joy of a book. Thank you. (laughs) uh, More people should read. Actually, a TikToker was asking for romance recommendations the other day, and I put that forward because... Oh, thank you. TikTok is the big... It is the big place now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's just because it's such human characters and they're not the archetype tropes that you see in romance, but it has that very traditional romance structure it's just beautifully crafted and very enjoyable thank you and where I'm speaking to you now is this your writing spot in your house so I'm in my bedroom at the moment sat on the bed I have two places that I write in the house we have quite a small house we have a, a living room and then a dining kitchen area as well and my husband since the pandemic works from home so one of us is normally upstairs and one of us is normally downstairs so if I'm downstairs, I write in, I've got a chair. My sister 
nursing chair. <laughs> After my sister had her son, she had this really lovely upholstered blue rocking chair that she used to feed him in. And when he grew up and she didn't need it anymore, she was, they were moving and they said, oh, can you just have the chair for a bit? And that was four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and nice. now if I'm downstairs, I sit in this really comfortable big chair and I will have my laptop on my lap. And I will write there, it's in the window. So I get to look out at the sky and everything mm. else. And then if I'm upstairs, I literally sit on my bed. So I have never, since I became, when I say published, or since I signed my deal, I've never written at a desk. I've always been in the rocking chair or on the bed. And yeah. we're hopefully moving in a couple of months and we'll have an office for the first time. So theoretically, yeah. I could sit at a desk and write but I'm just not sure it's me I'm not sure <laughs> yeah. I see these other authors with these really wonderful ornate desks and bookshelves mm. lining the walls and these amazing places where they work and I feel like I'm a little bit more scattergunny just right where you yeah. find yourself kind of an author so yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right and I think if you are immersing yourself in the mm. world that you're creating having a comfort place with an insulated mug so you've you've got yeah, warm no, tea absolutely. the whole time because there is a level of endurance I feel with yes with writing yeah some people write in short periods some people write for long periods mm. it sounds you're someone who writes for longer periods would you say I feel I'm a creature of habit when it comes to writing because this is now my day job I try and approach it as does so I don't set myself a daily limit of words or anything like that but I, I will work set kind of hours so on an ordinary day drop the kids off at school get back start by about half nine and then I will go through I need to leave again at half two so I'll normally try and finish about half once I do four hours and then have an hour off before I go and pick the kids up from half two but when I'm on a deadline or a deadline is approaching I can write up the kind of eight to ten hours a day especially when I'm editing because that mm. I find editing much easier than writing a first draft I yeah. feel like it's much easier to go through and I know my characters so much better by yeah. that point that you can almost read through and immediately know where you're telling them what to do rather than them telling you what to yeah. do um, and that's a really great stage to get at it means that life's just so much easier but yeah I try and be quite disciplined because I, I'm a great believer in the kind of you can't wait for motivation you should never get mm. anything done and some days I do sit down and I'm like oh God's sake, I just don't want to. I'm just going to look at Instagram. Don't look at Instagram. <laughs> and when I'm working upstairs, my husband always says he always knows when I've really settled down to write here, here at Thumb on the floorboards. And that's me throwing my phone to the other side of the room. <laughs> and I throw my phone to the other side of the room where I can't reach it. And then mm. that's it. I'm gone for the next yeah. two or three hours because there's nothing, there's no distraction yeah. anymore. So, yeah. Obviously, I haven't thought about the fact that I just look at stuff on my computer, but I don't do that. <laughs> You're disciplined. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I and, have that level of yeah. discipline, but I don't have the level of mm. discipline where I won't pick my phone up and by the side yeah. of me. So I'm very lazy. So I won't go to the <laughs> other side of the room and pick it up. Yeah. And are you someone who, because you said it's easier to edit than it mm. is on your first draft. Are you someone who plans out a first draft or are you very oh. much just a vomit draft, just kind of word vomit from the brain? It's different for every author, but I think when you write your debut, for a lot of authors, because you're working, a lot of us have to work at the same time as right. Mm. So I was working, bringing up two kids, like trying to have a bit of a life and also write a novel. You know, I would write whenever I could. I used to get up at like 4.30 in the morning so that I could write for an hour before my kids got up at 5.30, the buggers. You know, or write, Pete Blessing would take them out for the day so I could get five or six hours of, on a weekend. I think you don't necessarily know what kind of writer you are because it's such a scramble to actually mm. get anything down in the first place. So after last one of the party, once I got a deal for that and I knew I was going to write another book, I was like, okay, I need to find out what kind of writer I am really, what kind of writer I am now that I can actually be a proper, she says, holding her fingers up <laughs> in inverted commas, writer. And I'd seen all this stuff about people planning and I felt like that was me. I thought I'm a planner. I like the idea of planning. So we cleared one wall of everything in the kitchen and I got myself multicolored post-it notes and I put post-it notes up and I broke down every chapter of the book 
and I wrote what was going to happen with each character and I interweaved each character's storyline and it looked amazing. And I took this photo and I was like, wow, I am a proper writer. Look at that. And then I didn't look at it again ever. And I went off and I wrote something completely different. And if I looked at that photo now, nothing on that wall made it into my final draft. Nothing. (laughs) Not a character. None of the characters have the same name. None Mm. of them are the same people or have the same background or anything like Mm. that. None of them do the same thing. There's beginning, the ending, and the middle are completely different. It's completely different. It's not even got a sci-fi twist. It's historical fiction. No, no, no. It's not even even set in the future. And then I realised that unfortunately I am a pantser and I'd been a pantser with Last One at the Party. So Last One at the Party, for anyone who's not read it, has got like stuff that's set in the present day and then it has flashbacks. And none of the flashbacks that I wrote in my first draft made it through to my final draft. None of them are the same. Mm. So I would say with Last One at the Party, I probably rewrote around 50% of it over the course of writing it from first draft to last draft, at least 50%, I would say. And then Love and Other Human Errors, I wrote the first draft. I sent it off to my editor. My editor was like, I really like it. It's great. It's in third person. I feel, because it's such a great character, maybe you should try writing in first person. And I was like, so you mean you would like me to rewrite my entire book? And <laughs> she was like, when you put it like that, <laughs> yes. Um, and as soon as she said it, I knew she was right. Mm. So I rewrote 100,000 words from third person into first person. And then I rewrote again because Love and Other Human Errors has got three character voices. Yeah. And I rewrote the part of the voice of Jack. I rewrote Jack as a character because he wasn't work mm. in the next draft that I did. So I, I would say with Love and Other Human Errors, I rewrote the entire thing. And then I probably rewrote it again. 40% of it but that's just how I write and I'm on the thing I'm on the novel that I'm working on at the moment I am writing it and going back and making notes as my characters develop because they're not the same people on the first page as they are mm. even 20,000 words in and they already are developing and changing and their wants and their needs and mm. who they are and where the story goes is gonna change completely yeah. but I feel it's an incredibly wasteful but very exciting hmm. way yeah. to write. <laughs> and with two books that are out, Love and Other Human Errors and Last One at the Party, they have very strong female protagonists, but also really fascinating worlds in which they inhabit. And I was just wondering, when you start formulating a book, is it the character first that kind of like hooks you in? Or is there a situation or a world where you go, who would live in this kind of situation? Yeah, it's, that's interesting because with Last One of the Party, it started with the character in the world because mm. I am a huge lover of sci-fi and apocalypse fiction and post-apocalypse fiction. And I love a survival story and I love the machinations of survival as well. Like for me, when I'm reading those stories, the best bits are always like, where am I going to go for a week? And you know, do you know what I mean? How am I going to buy food? And what happens when the milk runs out? And, you know, what's going to happen there? And I don't lose interest, but the story to me always changes when the character that you follow finds other characters that they then make friends with or Mm. don't make friends with. And I was always really keen on this idea of what if you didn't find anyone else? What if there literally was nobody else left? Or they'd all gone somewhere and you could find them, you could follow or... So the world and the kind of character have always enmeshed together. So I always wanted her to be like me or my next door neighbor or the woman across the road and not have any kind of survival skills or anything like that. Because I think that makes for a far more interesting story than if she knows what she's doing from day one. Yeah. And I get a lot of reviews that are like, she is just rubbish. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I like to think that you or I or anyone might be better, but I feel we would hmm. genuinely feel like Everybody who's like, oh, I would rescue the animals. I would do this. I would do that. And I think, would you though? Would you? Would you? (laughs) I feel like you probably wouldn't. Like when it came to it, I think you'd be a bit traumatized anyway. With Love and Other Human Errors, I wanted to write a story about someone who'd never been in love Mm. and what it felt like to fall in love, not necessarily with someone else, but also with yourself. So I wanted to write about 
the different forms and the different ways that that love runs through us because there's so many different kind of types and a lot of the time I think especially I was going to say especially as women but I think it's the same for men now I think there's this kind of fallacy that love is easy and that you literally step out of your front door someday and there it is your eyes meet a bus stop and you're away and happily ever after and I know things are very different from the days of Disney fairy tale, but we still think Disney fairy tale. Yeah. We still tell fairy tale romance stories. And, you know, and I just wanted to write something that was a little bit more. Love is incredible and amazing. And sometimes it's just really hard work mm. and it's not something that's really easy. So I think the characters came after the idea more in that. So I thought, what are my best characters to show this? And then the setting came as part of the story because in order for the kind of AI and all the other data things to work, yeah. it had to be set slightly in the future. But I didn't want to set it too far in the future because there yeah. weren't robots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that everywhere. So yes, that one was more dictated by the story rather than the characters. Whereas yeah. I think Last One at the Party is like they both came together really. Yeah. And I definitely feel... With Last One at the Party, so much thought had gone into what the post-apocalyptic world would be like, mm. because the things that she discovers on her way in the cities and out mm. in the countryside, a lot of it rang true, and a lot of it, yeah, just like other people's behaviours and how they acted in their last moments were really poignant. Trying to be as spoiler light as possible, what she finds in Inverness, yeah, um, yeah, thought was like incredible, and do you think? Oh my goodness, yes, that's a very well-observed part of the human condition that yeah isn't really shown a lot. And of course, that could happen elsewhere. And I am just going to touch on Scotland as well, because my wife and I want to retire to Scotland. <laughs> and so I loved your portrayal of Scotland and what <laughs> happens, because the response of, oh, there's been a post-apocalypse, let's just fuck off to Scotland, is exactly what my <laughs> wife and I want to do. And... You know, because it's a story where there's obstacles and challenges and conflict, of course there is, it does not go well. And <laughs> I just, I love that. And it's to say to my wife, before we move. We need to check this. Yeah, read this. <laughs> so I love that. But again, it was just the fantasy versus the reality. And there's definitely a fair amount of thought. I was just wondering how you approach research to that, or was it just thinking it through and just on your own kind of process? Yeah, I talked about this a couple of times but I don't talk about it that often because I feel it's not the sort of thing that people who listen to podcasts really want to know but I'm terrible at research I'm just terrible at it I hate it a lot of people I know get into their characters get into their stories by research and of course if you're doing historical fiction or what and they have to read around a lot and learn a lot and I just cannot be asked I just want to write a good story that's why all of my novels including the one that I'm writing now are set in the future so I just make this shit up so for last one at the party with the stuff that was very much based in reality like <laughs> there's stuff at the Watford Gap service station which I pass every single time I go down the M1 so that's quite easy I, would do. I, I have a bone to pick with. I have a oh bone do you I do <laughs> and I don't want to dissuade anyone from reading the book and I actually I came up with my own reasoning in fact, I'm probably going to cut this because I feel this is just a you and me moment. Okay. But it's the fact that she decides to leave London, go north. She mm -hmm. talks about getting it like, up to what, 105 miles an hour, then skidding and then going mm. down to 60 and then running out of petrol. And then it's half two, half three in the morning. Yep, yep. And then she has to walk for a couple of hours before she f reaches <laughs> the Watford Gap. Have you done, done the math? I was just like, that's an hour and a half, like driving normally from <laughs> central London. I'm oh, like, there are many. And you didn't even pick up on the fact that the electricity lasts. Like I've had people say, electricity would have been out within three days. Oh, what? yeah, I know. That was a contrivance that, for the sake of the story. Oh, God, I was happy yeah. to go with. So, there's so much. And the problem is you have to think about what you can get away with if you want to leave this in i don't mind because nobody's gonna do you know what i mean you've got it was just like if she was in leicester yeah. <laughs> the thing is when i was in my 20s so this is just a little anecdote of me my mum lent me her car for the weekend and she was just like oh do a big monthly food shop i didn't have a car at the moment and of course i was like 24 i was like fuck it i'm gonna visit everyone i went to uni with <laughs> 
and it was just, it was like very early days of social media and Facebook. So it was like at a time where people actually Road used Facebook. <laughs> yeah. And I just said, message me your postcode. I will come and visit you and have a cup of tea. And over 48 hours, I rocked up over a thousand miles. Oh my God. And yeah, so I dropped it off on the Monday. And my mum, it was a fairly new car and she only used it for a little bit of commuting. So it had gone from 17 and a half thousand <laughs> to 18,640. <laughs> and it wasn't until a couple of weeks later, she just looked at the mileometer and she was like, <clears throat> Jesus Christ. What, Facebook what is happened better here? than I thought. <laughs> and I did a whole like blog post about it, which my parents don't, yeah, I don't really talk to them more anyway, but they weren't very interested in me. So, <laughs> but my aunt had read my blog and it was just like, what a massive adventure. That was a great sort of travel blog. And she told my parents. Oh. And she was just like, oh, Tom's road trip blog is amazing. And they're like, road trip blog? He was supposed to go to Tesco. And yeah, so I, I got very familiar with the geography of the British Isles because yeah. I went from Bristol to Cardiff to Midwells, Boothwells, then across to Leicester, then up to Durham, then down oh to Peterborough, God. then across to Norwich, then into central London, and then down to Surrey, and then back to Bristol. Wow. You must really have loved driving at that point. I don't do it anymore. This is, why I do, this is why I do everything from Zoom. I can't be asked to travel anywhere. And I drank so much Red Bull. It wasn't good for me then. It's not good for me now. And yeah, actually, my wife does a lot of, when we do like big drives, she loves motorway driving. But, See, I don't drive you know. on motorways anymore either. I have like a weird form of claustrophobia. I don't like it if I can't get off somewhere, if I can't yeah. get out somewhere. It's like, I'm okay on trains because they're quite big, but lifts, mm. I don't. Motorways are like the ultimate. You can't get off when you want to get off, and that freaks me out. It's but what if I don't want to drive on the motorway anymore? You have to wait 12 and a half miles. I'm like, huge praise to the people who work on our trains. They, they're getting a bad deal at the moment, and we wish them all well in their negotiations. It's an hour and a half to London. Oh, but it's yes. from Bristol. Yes. Wow, well, that's really good. Isn't it? Electrification. Uh, this is why you thought it was five hours to the Watford Gap services. Like you, know. <laughs> you can see now. Why it would be good if I did a little bit of research, because basically... <laughs> I feel that's going to be like a fun Easter egg for people like moving <laughs> forward, like the glaring obvious errors. Like, oh God. The story's and... fantastic. The characters are brilliantly well-observed. Like, the human condition is so well-understood. <laughs> but basic geography and Just physics terrible. out the window. And, uh, and it's true. And as I say, some of it I knew and I had to take a writerly kind of stance on it and say, mm. in order for the story to be any good, I'm going to ignore the fact that the electricity should have gone off after yeah. a couple of days and that there'd be a nuclear meltdown or something. Yeah, we'd like to think renewables in the future. It's a near future. Well, it, no, it's October, so we're all fucked. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> I do wonder, I don't think I'm at any point going to print again, but I do wonder if I did go to print again, whether I could say to Hodder, can we just push the date back a bit? Because it feels a bit <laughs> awkward now that it's like, so now people reviewing it now going, yeah, this is going to happen in October. And obviously, yeah. not, again, spoilers, there's a bit where it says, God save the Queen. It was written before the Queen died. Blade Runner <laughs> is set in 2019. Yes, it's a jolly good point. <laughs> Back good to point. the Future 2 is 2015. You know, so I, I think I'm allowed. You're, yeah, you're fine. I think I'm allowed a retrospective. Fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other bit that people always bring up is there is a bit with chicken. There's a bit with chickens. They don't need a rooster. My car yeah, where my character says, the only thing that I know about chickens is that if you want them to lay eggs, you need a rooster. Now, that's the I know that's not true, everyone. I know that's not true. Mm. My character yeah. does not know that's not true. So, so I feel like I need to clear that one up. That and one again, up separation <laughs> of author and character. This is how I got over the Watford Gap issue. Conundrum. Uh, again, trying to tread lightly on spoilers. But when she's making that drive, she is on drugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah. So it feels like Leonardo DiCaprio when he's on Quaaludes and Wolf of Wall Street. And he thinks he's driven that Lamborghini oh fine. Oh, God, yes. But yeah, the reality yeah, yeah. of it. And so that's why I thought, yeah, of course she did 105. She was probably doing that is, 20. Uh, that is one of the great comic moments on film. If I see that clip at some point on social media, I do not scroll past because it's yeah. always worth your time. So I, I feel the unnamed central character of Last One of the Party is going through a similar yeah. thing. And, and so I think she probably is, to be yeah. honest with you. And so I feel, again, it's a very well-observed human condition thing. 
Yeah. That's your get out because it's the character's point of view. Yes. It's not an uh, omniscient narrator. No, absolutely. And with obviously with love and other human errors, it's even more difficult because there's like quantum computing mm. in love and other human errors. And I, I'm not like the most computer savvy person in the world or the most up to date on electronics and stuff like that. There's divisions of labor in every household mm. and in our household, Pete deals with that side of yeah. things and I don't. But I'm lucky enough that my core group of really good friends that I've been friends with for many years are like, bless them all, massive giant geek. Like they all were in some kind of level of computing or compositing or some kind of design type thing in ways that when we get together and they chat, I rarely understand a lot of what they're saying, but I smile a lot and drink beer. So I'm still allowed to be there. And when I first came up with the idea of love and other human errors and the fact that there is quantum computing in it and quantum theory in it and all these other ideas, they very kindly did a Zoom call with me where I said, look, I need a crash course in all this and I need you to give it to me. And they all sat down and we did this Zoom and it was like great fun. And at the end, they were like, so do you get it now? And I was like, and there was just deafening silence. I didn't have a clue. And then I remember being really worried about it and like being positive in our WhatsApp group saying, oh, is this, does this work? Does this work? Does this make sense? And one of my friends, Andrew, came back and messaged and said, can I just ask, how many virologists did you talk to before you wrote last one at the party? And I was like, what? And he was like, how much research did you do on 6pm? And I was like, nothing. It's called 6pm because <laughs> I couldn't think of an name for it. Yeah. And he was like, then why the fuck are you doing loads of stuff on this one? You're a writer, just go and write it. And I was like, that's genius. So what I actually did was I wrote Love and Other Human Errors and I wrote it as I wanted to write it. And then when I got to editing stage, my... Bless him, my lovely friend Bird. I sent him all the computery bits in, in mm. it. Every single section had anything about quantum and about computers and about anything else in it. And I said to him, Will you read these and tell me the bits that are like completely ridiculous? And then we had a Zoom call and bless him, I like put my camera on and we had a little bit of chat. And then I said to him, Oh, so how was it? Is it okay? And he just looked at me and he went, <laughs> <laughs> He just did the biggest sigh. Yeah. And then we spent about four hours just going through and he basically rewrote those bits for me and told mm. me where it's wrong. And people say, yeah. oh, it's such great research, blah, blah, blah. But I had an assistant. My assistant is Bert. Yeah. I owe it all to him. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think things coming out of the edit and having beta readers can be massively useful. Yes. Uh, but also it's what works in the story. And it's a device, a literal device, in the sake of love and hum- other human errors, that helps push the narrative along and does the internal logic of the story hold up yes it does and And that's the important thing and I always say when I'm thinking about new ideas and specifically about the one that I'm writing now I'm not going to give any spoilers away but there is something that happened in this story whereby early feedback was "Mm, I'm not sure how you're going to do that and I'm not sure whether or not that's going to work and my comeback is always if I had last one at the party and an illness that kills you in six days again time spoiler but everyone's dead so it's gonna happen somehow (laughs) then i believe that the kickback would have been like people aren't gonna buy that people aren't Mm. gonna buy this illness that spreads across the world that quickly and that kills the population within x amount of time trying to stop spoilers but they do because i buy it and Mm. my character buys it and that's why it works because what people are worried about is taken care of in a paragraph because that's yeah. your job as an author is yeah. to sell that idea. And if you sell it, they will believe it. If you build yeah. it, they will come. And if yeah. you sell it, they will believe it. And it's as simple as that. And if you're not selling it and they don't believe it, then you're not writing mm. it well enough. So go yeah. back and do it again. Oh, that sounded really harsh. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. No, and I think it is. Yeah, if you can't convince your readership, then it's your skills as a writer. Absolutely. And I um, have never had a single person. I've had them pick on many things in that book. I have never had a single person come back and say, yeah, I don't believe that would happen. Maybe it's a COVID thing. Maybe it's because none of us believe we'd be locked down. I also think one of your strengths as a writer, one of your strengths as a writer is the human reactions. And you write different personality types authentically. You feel like, oh, that's a believable human being. That's how that type of human (laughs) being would react. That's a believable dog. Yes. Oh, dogs are great. But it's interesting hearing you push back on that feedback because 
it's such an insular job where mm. it's just I've got this idea that I need to articulate the best that I'm capable of doing and hope it finds an audience and there can be a lot of insecurity with that and a lot mm. of people who can lose faith in a project and abandon books where they're just like I've lost it and to have the confidence to say no I, this holds up in my head and this this will find its audience and this is worthy of continuation I'm just wondering have you had those doubts with projects have you had to abandon projects is there a so, period in each project where you have a moment of crisis yes there is a dark light of the soul in every single project that you <laughs> okay. do there that I that yeah. is a genuine that's a great thing. way of phrasing it as well by yeah the way. it is I remember being told by someone a very long time ago when I was writing something that at some point in every project you will reach a point whereby you just want to give up where yeah. you don't feel it is worth it anymore and if you carry on that is your answer because basically the ones that it's not worth it you will just give up and the ones that it is worth it you will carry on with and um, so with last one at the party I was very lucky. So I went to the Northern Field School and did their screenwriting writing course. And we had some absolutely brilliant teachers. And I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that course and the things it taught me about story, but also the things it taught me about work and about having a work ethic and also about knowing yourself as a creative, be that an author or whatever it is that you want to do in the creative industries. And one of the things obviously you do learn is about throwing the, the baby out with the bathroom. So one of the great things this course taught me was to accept feedback, but it also teaches you to be critical of that feedback and know what part of that feedback to take and what part to leave. Because if you take that feedback, it's not your project anymore. Mm. So with the last one at the party, very early on, when I was querying agents, I got some feedback that said that the person who'd read it thought that it's an amazing character, absolutely loved the lead character and wondered what it would be like if she met someone else and interacted with that other person and then maybe they went on the journey together and they didn't get on to begin with and then they had to get done and it was from it was feedback that theoretically would have led to me getting an agent which obviously was my focus at that point I'd never got that far before it was amazing and I had to sit down and think whether or not I wanted to accept that feedback at the risk of the fact that the book would not be the book that I wanted to write anymore. Yeah. And ultimately, I didn't because it, I realised, and I realise now in hindsight, it's more important, you have to write what you love because you're going to be trying to sell what you love and talk about what you mm. love for at least a couple of years. And if, I'd, if, that had, if that book hadn't been... Last of the Party wouldn't have sold if it wasn't what it is. That's what makes it unique, yeah. is that the single person. And actually, I, I took that feedback and I did work it into the book in a way, which I'm not going to talk yeah. about, but in my own way. And then with Love and Other Human Errors, at one point, I was very close to not having one of the characters, not having Jack, who mm. is one of the lead characters yeah. in the story. And there was the idea that I got rid of Jack to give more space to Lena and Indiana to talk was floated. But for me, especially in the very beginning of that story, I feel like Jack is me. Jack is the reader. Jack is mm. the one who is looking at this world and is the most like heartfelt, mm. heart on your sleeve, say it as you see it, just has no sides to him. Yeah. Character in a world where the other characters aren't particularly, they're not, what's the word? What's the, is it honest narrators? What are they called? Trustworthy oh, um, narrators. Yeah, you have yeah, unreliable. Yeah. yeah, so the others, they're a little unreliable narrators in that they're so focused on their own. And yeah. I wanted someone who was going to be there, who the audience would go with or the reader would go with, sorry. And yeah. for me, and actually for a lot of readers, the feedback I've got is I was right. Is Jack is the human way into that story. Before the other characters actually give you that opportunity to root I, for them, you root for him. I think what's really good, because out of the three voices that are portrayed to that story, his is the last one introduced. Mm. And the others... I would say rather than unreliable, they're not honest with themselves mm. at the start. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Jack very much yeah. knows who he is. And he's more... He's not honest with anyone else. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. he's very much, this is who I am, and is very open with the reader in mm. a way that the others are closed off yeah, yeah. and are just like in denial. Mm. And 
it's fascinating to hear that he might not have been in it at all because he's mm. such a linchpin. I feel that he helps the change of the story. Um, the feedback that I got, again, it was really valuable. It made me realize that he wasn't working. He obviously wasn't mm. doing the job that I needed him to do because that was not how the reader was viewing him. The reader was not saying, hold on a second. Yes, I'm like immediately invested in him and he's this and blah, 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 blah. And that's how you need to learn how to be critical with your feedback and learn what that feedback is actually saying. It's a bit like, what's your story actually about? It's never yeah. just about the last woman left alive yeah. or someone who's never been in love having to demonstrate their love at. Mm. It's about something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> in response to your original question, which I don't even know whether I've answered, yes, very much, very much. And I actually, I wrote 10,000 words of something last year that I have abandoned and I might go back to, but I realized it was just, it was not what I wanted to write at this point. Yeah. I was not enthusiastic about it enough. And if you're going to write something, you got to bloody love it. <laughs> a lot of say, career authors that I've interviewed talk about having, and the metaphor that I like most is cooking on the hob and that there's like a few things simmering in the background, but there's yeah, the yeah, one yeah. at the moment, right, yeah, adding the ingredients or Jen Williams came up with the great composting, mm. which is you just lay a load of things out and then you're seeing which sprouts grow and which yes. need nurturing right now and which can just be left to their own devices. So it yeah. sounds like the 10,000 is, yeah, let it grow, let it be in the background, maybe it'll blossom. It just needs yes. more time or it's simmering. It's just percolating in the background. Well, what happens? Away. I feel like in the grand scheme of things, 10,000 words sounds a lot, but it's just, it's really nothing. You can write 10,000 words in a week if you want to. But it's important because I feel every single thing you write, I do a, like an hour's teaching session on like my seven things that I've learned as a writer. And my first thing when people ask, how do I become a writer? My first thing that I always say is you need to learn to tell a good story. We used to tell stories to each other all the time. We used to tell stories over the campfire. We used to tell stories when there was no TV. We used to read stories or we used to tell stories to our kids. We don't tell stories to our kids anymore. We read from books that yeah. other people have written. And I think a lot of people don't know how to tell a really good story. Like my mum, my mum is a great storyteller. My mum's mm. like me. She's very chatty. will chat to anyone and has this absolute craft of being able to tell a really great story. One that lasts two minutes, one that lasts 20 minutes. And she yeah. can reel you in the beginning. She can do a great middle and then she wraps it up at the end. And I feel like that's something that I saw a lot. We used to sit around after Sunday dinner and my nan would tell stories about my mum's youth and then my mum would tell stories about us and when we were younger. And, and so we'd learnt it through the family anyway. But yeah, just learn to tell a story. And it doesn't have yeah. to be a really big thing. It can be really short. But the only way to become a great writer is to practice that, is yeah. to tell stories and to write. And that's, I genuinely believe that you can read all the books you like. You can... Mm do all the courses that you like but you know I'm a better writer now than I was when I wrote last on the party yeah. and I was a better writer when I wrote last on the party than I was when I wrote my first novel 20 years ago it's just it's how it is it stands to reason yeah. but just yeah. write it I'm and sorry that's no, completely come out of nowhere what were we even talking about that's, that's right no it was just it's about your writing process that's all mm. covered that's all good content <laughs> that's absolutely fine also I'm not someone who prescribes to a set list of questions. If you've answered something, then that, that's great. You've covered it all. It's great. I do want to talk a bit more about the project you're working on that you're 20,000 words in now. Mm. Yeah, I'm guessing like no research. No. Uh, I'm guessing near future. <laughs> Is it again a near future sci-fi? It's quite a far, it's quite far in the future, this one. Okay, so it's not October. It's, it's, it's like no, no, November. No, no, not October and not 10 years from now. We're okay. leaping forward. I'm still narrowing it down, but we're leaping forward like a min minimum of 20, 30 years this okay. time. No. So yeah, so it's set in the future. The nearest I can give as a kind of comparison is that it's a kind of like a feminist sci-fi futuristic retelling of Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. And it's not a retelling of Jekyll and Hyde at all, but it, it's got some, but it's got a Duality? kind of crossover. Yes. So That's... it's got this kind of like Jekyll and Hyde-esque kind of background and... to it. So yeah. Are, are you drafting in first person or third person? First person again. So it's first person, two different viewpoints this time. Yeah. Hope I haven't given too much away and someone else is going to write it really quickly and <laughs> beat me to it. <laughs> set 25 years in the future, two points of view. Yes. I think a lot of people could write books like that and they'd all be different. <laughs> I don't think you have copyright. 
on that. No, I don't. That, that, that'd be it's a hard case true. to win, Bethany. No, <laughs> but I shall be keeping this just in case. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. This is evidence. Exhibit A. Yeah. Um, have mm. you got beta readers lined up that you think would be useful for reading this story? Or do you no, like to... I don't. To be honest with you, it's difficult, isn't it? I think using readers is very valuable to some or I think using more than one can create a confusion because mm -hmm. obviously you are the writer and you are the owner of your own work and your own ideas and how you want your book to be. Every time you send that book to somebody else, they are going to come back with a different viewpoint. You are never yeah. going to send your book out to someone and they're going to come back and say, this is great, this is it, full stop, you're done, go for it. And I think for me, I would want to be really careful about how many different cooks Mm. come to my pot and tell me what should potentially be in it. Yeah. And I also think it's, it sounds harsh, but you need to make sure that anybody who reads it is worthy of reading it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, like, no, that sounds absolutely. really terrible. But like you, when you think about the number of people that want to give feedback on your work and mm. have ideas of what should happen in your work, you have to, be assured enough as a writer to know exactly what it is that you want to write. And it gets muddied every single time somebody else feeds back on it. Yeah. And I'm incredibly lucky. So my agent, Cara, and my editors at Pod have just been amazing. And that every single time they've just added such value to my work and such insight. And anybody who says that they don't get editors in, I'm like, really? I feel like, you know, okay, good luck. Because yeah. I just think that it's so valuable. But at the same time, yeah, I'm cautious about where it goes and who looks, especially in the nicest possible way, especially other authors who have their own, not their own agenda. I'm not saying they're going to make it terrible or anything like that. But obviously, because you're, once you're an author, I have a very specific way of writing. Yeah. You have a rhythm and a cadence to your words that you may not even be aware of, but mm. you do. And it's very easy, I think, to attribute that elsewhere. So interestingly, a little exclusive here for you, I've written another book that's completely, this one is completely different. Okay. So if it gets published, it will not be going out under my name because oh. it's completely different. But it's very interesting because I do wonder whether or not people will know it's me because mm. I feel like already I have readers who say I would recognize your writing. Which as an author, you never think that. You think, yeah. no. But then I have people say, I can totally see the similarities between Last One and the Party and Love and Other Human Areas, even if they're completely different because you wrote them and I can see that kind of style. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely think of you as someone who examines the human condition and human behavior, which isn't always a author's primary focus. It is a lot and it is definitely something that draws me in as a reader some people want non-stop action some people just want a twisty turny story that keeps them getting right up into the final page see that's really interesting because yeah. i would i consider myself to be a commercial i consider myself to be i mean obviously i like that i've got characters yeah. and i want my characters to drive my story but i would still i hate when people talk in terms of literary we're all writing fucking books we're literary <laughs> do you know what I mean? yeah. oh, oh, sorry I, that sounds really terrible. No, I don't no, mean no, that in a class in any I, kind yeah, of way. But I don't. That, that, there's yeah. not a single book that I haven't written that's not got like a turn of phrase that's beautiful in it. Mm. It's all like fiction is literary and it's yeah. all beautiful. Um, but I wouldn't. I've always thought of myself more as a pulpy author. Does that make mm. sense? I feel I'm a pick up, put down. See, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Because you don't like I, people I think view you of, so differently. Of, because of the film studying background, mm -hmm. it has got a very strong visual style and the language used is very accessible because yes. of that first person perspective. It feels very much, especially with Love and uh, the Human Errors, whether this was a conscious thing or not, I felt that they all had a different stylistic way of speaking. Like they've had very yes. clear narrative voices. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yes. Okay. That was intentional. Great. Uh, Your biggest fear. Oh, yeah. they all sound exactly the same. <laughs> but also to like the vocabulary, like yes. the, where it comes to the more technically minded and yeah, the non technically yeah, yeah. minded. So it's. Which is again something. So my editor really picked up on mm. that and said, you must make sure that your language for Indiana is completely different to your language for Lena. And I think there's definitely a number of authors, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but I have <laughs> read authors 
that don't put that work in. And so it's nice to see and go, okay, this is a person who's willing to put in that effort to make these people distinct, not only in their behaviors, (laughs) but in their language. And that's why for me, it seems very character focused. I think last one at the party, you are expecting her to meet possibly a man, possibly someone who, (laughs) yes, they rub each other up the wrong way. And because that doesn't happen, it's refreshing because it's all, thank God, it's not going the way that a million other versions of this book could have gone. Yeah, see, that's quite interesting as well, because I think talking about the filmic background, when you draft a film or a TV episode, obviously you are always thinking about your kind of like temporal scenes. So you've Mm. got like those scenes. And I do find that I do that when I'm writing my book. I'm not going to spoilers, but I could tell you my five temples. The cul-de-sac situation mm-hmm. in Last One at the Party, I feel that was very visual. No, absolutely. And all... I think it is that's probably why I guess that I, I suppose when you look at your own work, you look at it very differently because you obviously viewed it that way for so long or whatever and then it's really interesting to see how other people view it as well because it's not necessarily what you saw in it in the first place so yeah it's an interesting thing because as you said as well like being an author is so solo you know I mean I went from working with a team of like 20 and talking to people every single day and now it's me yeah I have a little company and (laughs) I am my only employer I'm the employer and the employee so I think you just spend so much time in your head that you don't like ever step outside to view it from elsewhere. And it is something where, and I'm trying not to do it as a host, but it's the, oh, I really noticed the themes of this, that, and the other. <laughs> in yeah. it because no one thinks that. There's a broad sort yes. of thing that I want to address, but it's just the, sort of like, ah, the symbolism behind this blue yeah, jumper that yeah, they're yeah. wearing. You're probably going, this no, is, what am I wearing now? And I think for me as well, because of the way that I write, that often doesn't come until the end of the first draft. Mm. So I will write the story that I want to, to read. Both Last One at the Party and Love Another Human Heroes were written because I hadn't found a book that I wanted to read. And the third book that I wrote was written because I was watching something and I suddenly thought I could write a really brilliant book about this. Yeah. And so I just went off and did it, even though mm. no one asked me to. <laughs> no one probably wants it. But I sometimes think, As an author, you spend a lot of time when you get to a certain stage, you write because you need the money. And Mm. I had a little gap in a few months where I wasn't really doing anything. And I thought I could sit around not doing anything. I could write this idea that I'm really enthusiastic about. So I just wrote it, even though it's nothing to do with anything that I've written before or won't even be able to publish by me. But anyway, sometimes you just do. And this one as well, this third one, because I want to read the book. That's why I'm writing. I'm writing the book that I want to read. So I tend to just write that. And then at the end of the first draft, I'll be like, actually, that's what that character really wants. And that's when I have to go back and obviously redraft again because it doesn't make sense. If really what they want is love in the first five chapters, what they want is a dog. Yeah, I think readers don't really appreciate that because they go, oh, that sort of like ties in with that. That's like, yeah, that wasn't first draft, mate. No. You know, I'm going to leave this here. It's I've ended it here. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't work unless I put something in earlier it, on. Oh, my God. And the amount of times that if you could read a first draft, you would see that basically what people have done is they've written something on page 200. And then if you go back to page 21 and you say, look at page 200 and see <laughs> that here. And yeah. you have to. It's someone picks up a bottle to hit someone over the head. Mm. At some point, if I'm not saying if you're a good writer, but at some point, if you really want your audience to be like, oh, God, you will yeah. put that bottle there. Someone yeah, yeah, yeah. else will leave that bottle there. It's Chekhov's gun, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But you never think that when you're writing, you're just writing merrily away, someone hits someone with a bottle over the head. No, put the bottle in. Yeah. You know, Don't go back and do it, for God's yeah. sake. And that's my other thing is just keep going. Yeah. Tell yourself I... what you need to do, but don't go back and do it because you'll never finish. And it's the difference between a good and great writer is someone will have putting this bottle in and it just almost like jerks out. It's like, they're just chatting. And then Dave puts a bottle down and like, why is that in there? Oh, okay, that's <laughs> going to pay off in 180 yeah. pages. But it's like a great writer is just one of Dave's quirk is that he has a bottle collection. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like an idiosyncrasy, which 
looks to be dictating another part of character. And you don't even notice it the first time yeah, you read through. Because yeah. if you if it looks like it's seeding something else or it's commenting on something else, then it's disguised. If it's just there for their sake, and that's definitely what I've read over the last year, is like if that said it's not a key part of the scene or saying something specific about the character, yes. I know it's for something later on. But yes. if it is saying something about character, if it is saying something, if it is key to that scene, then I can't see it. No. And again, it's these little tools that I'm mm -hmm. appreciating more as a reader and I can recognise great writing more when that's fooled me. And I don't have the pressure of having to write my own stuff. It's great. <laughs> I just set something up in the second chapter that I'm writing at the moment that I know I will not probably pay off until maybe the last quarter. At some point during the last quarter, that would be paid off. For most readers, they won't even recognise that it's yeah. a payoff. But I know that there are people out there like me that will flip back to that first yeah, chapter yeah, yeah. and be like, shit, I knew it. I knew she put that in there. Yeah, and yeah. that's the people that you're writing for. You're writing yeah. for those people that appreciate that. And it's not everyone. Yeah. And everyone shouldn't. I've got books that I can slip back through endlessly and I've got other books that I'll just read straight through that other people will be flicking back through endlessly and it, you don't have to prescribe to one side or the other but yeah. just know that there's always an author when you do it there's always an author sitting there going hey, yes, <laughs> inside absolutely <laughs> we've been talking at great length and I've, I realised yes. that we're getting to an hour <laughs> so I have last two questions okay now it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with every story that they write was there anything in particular that you feel that you learnt on your last story that you're now applying to your current story or intend to apply? Yes, I feel like last time I very much tried to write in a way that wasn't me, as in I tried to plan, I tried to know where everything's mm. going, I tried to be a plotter rather than a pantser. And this time, I've very much given myself the freedom to just write how I want to write and write what I want to write as well. It's, it's interesting because I'm obviously talking about Love and Other Human Errors. And then I wrote this other novel and because I just wrote it for me, not knowing that it's actually going to go anywhere, it was just a really great kind of exercise in this is how I want to be as a writer. So I'm trying yeah. now to do that more in my career books mm. because it should be fun. Yeah. And I feel this a lot of time, like I see writers, I see established writers, I see new writers, I see people who are just at the very beginning of their writing career on Twitter saying, oh God, I'm really struggling. And is it easy for me to say? No, it's not easy for me to say because I'm there as well. But my advice to them would be don't. Step away from the computer, yeah. go for a walk. Like this morning before we recorded this, I wanted to try and get some words down. I wanted to do a bit. So I started early. It wasn't working. So I just stopped and I wrote just some ideas that I've got for like future chapters. I wrote a little bit of timeline. I thought about my characters. I thought about where I wanted them to go. I thought about some temp policies, essentially. Just give yourself a little bit of a break. Mm. And remember that if you wanted to earn good money, you could do practically any other fucking job in the world, yeah. okay? Yeah. Go and become a banker if you want to earn good money and do something shit that you hate. You're doing this because you love it. That's the reason yeah. why you're doing that. Otherwise, you do something else. Okay. <laughs> no, and I think on that, we need to like gear up. This is why I have the last question. Is there one piece of advice that you find yourself returning to that resonates with your writing when you work? Uh, yes, there is one piece of advice. So there, well, there is two pieces of advice. One is Frank Cottrell Boyce. Boyce. I never say your name right, Frank. I'm so sorry. Like I quote it all the time yeah. and I never do it. And he says, just slap it down. Just slap it down. God's sake, just get it out of your brain and onto the page. It doesn't matter whether it's good. No one cares. It's the first draft. It's yeah. not supposed to be good. It's supposed to be 300 pages of just noise. And the second one is you can't edit a blank page. Yes. So even when I'm having a really shit day, I try and write something. Mm. Because it doesn't matter that it's not great. It's got something in it that means it's down there. And I can make it great in my next edit. But I can't edit something that's not there. And until yeah. you've written 70 to 80,000 words, you can't move to the edit stage. So you just have to get there and it's horrible. But once it's done, even when I had to rewrite the entire thing as first person, it was never as hard as it was the first time yeah. now. Because you'll always have something. Yeah. So just write it and then worry about it afterwards. But write it, move on, slap it down. That is fantastic. That is a great place to sign off. Bethany Clift, <laughs> thank you very much for being my guest this week. Oh, thank you. I've had such a lovely time. <laughs> thank you.
And that was the real writing process of Bethany Clift. Now, both Last Run at the Party and Love and Other Human Errors are freely available to order at all bookshops or in digital format. If you'd like to check out her social media, she's on Instagram and X, but I recommend you follow her on Instagram as not only is it a better functioning website, but you also get to see pictures of her dog, Pickle. Uh, so that's Beth underscore writes underscore stuff, but you can Google it. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link it. That's fine. Now, for those involved in this year's NaNoWriMo, I wish you the very best of luck. Remember, something is better than nothing and don't overthink it. It's a writing month, not an editing month. In the meantime, though, look after yourselves and keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally No, it's the harshest mistress of all And life is just a chain A moment spent A thousand hellos and goodbyes Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near Until the world is you Are safe with me Until the world is Tides never 